Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So Heidi, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So Heidi, you're calling in today from um, Colorado, right? Yes, ma'am. I am in Louisville, Colorado, which is a little bedroom community just right outside of Boulder. Got it. So isn't it funny that Boulder has become big enough that it, it has a bedroom community? <laughs> yeah, it, that is true. It's been interesting to kind of watch it grow um, up into kind of, they call it the Boulder Donut, where, you know, it, it's farmland that has been purchased essentially by the city of Boulder so that it can kind of grow within its boundaries. Oh, um, but as far as like the population and the size, yeah, it's been really interesting to watch it grow in the 13 years I've lived here. So I bet, I bet. I, I was recently, cause my daughter lives in Flagstaff and I went to visit her in Flagstaff. She just moved there. I went to visit her and it reminded me of Boulder 20 years ago. Yeah, that is actually a pretty accurate depiction. Um, the two places that I say are like Boulder 20 years ago are Boise and Flagstaff. Yeah, I agree with both of those locations. It's really interesting. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so glad you could join us today because, um, you know, I, I, I think the so you're you're part of a, a firm that works nationally that we've been doing some work with and I really I'm really excited to have you on so you can talk about what you guys do. So why don't we start there? I work with a firm called ADL Growth Partners. And what we are is a fractional share accounting strategy and finance entity. So we have everything from CFOs all the way down to accountants. And we try to customize the proper solution per each client that we serve, whether they only need a CFO engagement for strategy and assistance in whether it be growth or um, capital raise or just simply coming up with financial modeling in order to help them grow because they're at an early stage high velocity growth. Uh, we then also have what we call a full silo of uh, services, which is we will have a CFO, a VP of finance, a controller, and a staff accountant. So our whole silo um, set up for that entity. We really do try to figure out what's going to work best for the client as far as what they want to in-house and what they want to have oversight over and what they would like us to do. So again, some people we have just a CFO, some people just a VP of finance or a controller, and then some engagements we have fill all of those positions um, and have that full oversight of the accounting and finance. And so it's really fun because we touch anywhere from food manufacturing to service industry to SaaS-based technology companies um, and a lot of retailers, medical spas, the list goes on and on. And so it is really fun because every day is a very, very different day depending on 
the stage of client we're working with, the industry of the client we're working with, the type of team that we're working with, or even the type of engagement. It may just be project, it may be long-term. And so uh, it, it's very exciting because we really feel like we get to be an integral part of these businesses and have a huge impact on their growth and their strategy and their outcome. And so it is really fun to work with them and work with our internal resources as well as some of the resources that, that they have that we integrate with. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think a couple of things. So, so you know, I... Uh, so we work, we do food, right? So, so we found, right. I found you guys because you have a, a, a specific expertise within food, right? So, so yes, and you have this um, fractional model that is so useful to young food companies that we work with. Um, I think it's so um, the the flexibility of what you do is really unique. A lot of lot of um, a, you know, a, a traditional accounting firm doesn't do the same kinds of flexing that you do. You know, they seem to be more rigid and then they don't know the food space maybe as well as you do. And then, you know, the other thing that I think you guys do that is really, really great and, and unique is the support you give to people who are doing equity raises um, in food. Right. Because there are people yeah. who do tech that, you know, that's easier to find, I think. But for people who are raising equity in food to have a firm like yours who has that expertise is really terrific. Yeah, it is fun because working with food and food manufacturing, it's its own beast. Mm -hmm. um, it, it has a very different financial model uh, when you're raising funds uh, if you're not working with a company that's used to working specifically with an early stage food company, there's a lot of education that needs to go on because it is much different than any investing that they've done before. And then you also have a very stable set of food investors who, who measure and metric results and what investments they're interested in in a very distinct way. And so it's really fun to work with the companies on specifically what it looks like to raise money in food and how your financials and your data set need to be built um, for those really savvy food investors and then also teach them how to educate non-food savvy investors to get them to kind of understand elements that you don't see in many other industries for example trade spend which you know we can talk about which is this interesting complexity um, in the food industry when you were in brick and mortar. And that seems to be this really large moving element that can trip companies up very easily. And so it's really fun to be able to guide them through and understand it and really own it and master it because it is so distinct to that particular industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I think I think as I'm listening to you, I think we, sh we get to go back a little bit and help people understand the difference between what a CFO does and what a controller does and what a bookkeeper does. Because like a lot of the, the startup sure. people that I work with, you know, when they come to us, they have a bookkeeper or they have and they'll say, well, I have an accounting firm and they, you know, they file my taxes. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to be enough right? So help us understand the difference there. 
Right. Um, so usually a bookkeeper is someone who is self-taught to um, be that accounting function, that data, day-to-day entry information um, and account reconciliation for much more simple businesses. And they're usually either a trade school or self-taught type of individual. Um, and then you have a uh, an accountant who usually has a four-year degree and specific experience within doing accounting for mid to large business. You then have a controller who manages usually the accountant or the bookkeeper. And what they're making sure is they're looking at the data set, the way that the bookkeeper or accountant are entering in all of the different data. So whether it be invoices um, or, you know, vendor invoices or accounts receivable invoices, they go in and they make sure that all that data that's going in that makes up your financial statements, how they're processing payroll, how they're entering that into the system. When you look at the financials month over month, that, that it all makes sense that there's a trend there that all of the revenue is booked in the right month, all of the expenses are booked into the right month. And then they usually go a step farther when you're doing closer to accrual gap accounting, which is making sure that you're doing much more deeper entry to ensure that anything that you haven't received either from a vendor or a customer is being place marked within the financial statements um, so that that information is captured so that you can really understand what your financials should have looked like that month. You then have the controller, which tends to be the architect of, of the strategy of the, en- the entity. And so they're really guiding the controller on the setup of the chart of accounts, how they want the data captured, how they want when we talk about accruals, meaning entries into the system for things that haven't been received or are received in the wrong period and you wanna make that adjustment so that it's reflecting in, in the right period so that you can have a better understanding of the results. What the CFO does is they are working with the controller and the accountant to make sure that the data set is accurate so that they can then take that data set, do financial modeling with that so that they can really guide the executive and leadership team of the company to what are the right decisions for the company? What is the health and well-being of the company and what is the story that our financials are telling us both positive and negative, and how do we pivot and move and change from that story that our financials are telling us. And the only way to really do that is if you successfully have the resources in place for accountant and controller to make sure that the data set is correct because it's the theory of junk in, junk out. And you could make some very bad strategic decisions if your data set is not functioning correctly and you're making decisions based off of bad data. So that really is the role of the CFO is to come up with that strategy, help work on what are the KPIs, what are the growth strategies, what are the different initiatives that we're going to put in place and track, and how does the data that we're seeing historically match up to the assumptions that we make and what does that tell us about what's happening within the business. So that tends to be the role of the CFO. Right. And, you know, so you listen to, I listen to all this and, and think about 
um, you know, when I when I started Tara's Way, I had the benefit of having run a bigger company before. So I and a, it was a hundred year old company. So lots of systems in place, right? And we didn't have yes. a CFO, but we had a controller and we had accountants and all of that, right? And then I started Tara's Way, and I knew what I needed. But I didn't have all those people. I couldn't afford all those people, and we weren't big enough for all those people. So it's it's a real struggle, right? And so what ends up happening is people have, you know, you you need a book. Somebody it's got to do the bookkeeping, so you do that first, and then yeah. we had kind of a fractional controller thing that actually worked really great. We didn't have a fractional CFO option which, you know, would have been incredibly helpful. Yeah, it, it, the nice thing about the fractional resource is that you don't need the whole cost of that whole resource full time. And there's just not enough workload to substantiate the investment. But that knowledge and strategy and guidance is so key to companies being able to stay on the growth path that they envision for their entity. And so it is it is a really fun model that I enjoy from the CFO side because I get to work with so many different entrepreneurs and um, CEOs and CFOs and just overall staff, uh, which is really fun on the fractional side. Every day is a different day because it depends on what company we're working on and what phase that they're in. Um, and it does work really nice for the companies because they're only investing in the things that bring value in that moment. So they're giving away less equity in the entity in order to hire what would normally be a full-time CFO because they generally want a stake in the company or even the salary compensation of, of the skill set that comes that type of resource. So I, I think it works really well for the companies. And I will tell you, as far as the ABL CFOs, we really love having our toe in multiple waters and working with multiple entities. It keeps everything really interesting and exciting. Yeah, yeah, no. And and it um, the other thing that has changed so much over the years is um, the ability to do this remotely, right? Like, like when I was... Yeah. I did, I ran a, the cheese company I ran before I, um, before I did the Terra's Way thing, you know, we, everything was local, right? And we, we really had to have our staff and, oh my God, you know, computer systems back then for, for doing inventory were just a nightmare. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and now, you know, with, with, um, with the cloud and um, software being remote the way it is, it makes it possible for people like you to do what you do crazy it really it really does and and that's been a huge benefit um, to a lot of our entities that are in smaller locations in much more rural locations um, because it's a lot harder to find those key resources to be able to perform those tasks right. and so it takes away that locational need to find that skill set of that person that can really deliver on on what you want. Um, and then there's also that personality component to it where because you, you know, have a larger pool from this fractional share that you can pull from and really find the CFO that fits your culture as well as bringing the skill set, 
Um, the fact that we can do a large portion of it remote is awesome. And especially in this day and age of Google Hangouts and Zoom and uh, you know Uber Conference, all these different systems, it used to be hard to work remotely because you missed that face-to-face -face component. And so it's fun now because with these different platforms, you can screen share, you can see the person that you're talking to. So it is almost like you're right there next to them, but you are working remotely. I have clients in Wisconsin and Texas and California and Washington. And uh, some of them I've never actually shaken hands with, but I feel like you know, I know them very well. And, yeah. you know, you know their facial expressions and you can read their body language because you're doing it via Google Hangouts or Zoom or some other platform. And so you do have that very intimate connection that we didn't used to be able to have, which made working remotely a lot more difficult. So it has been really fun to even watch. I would say even over the last eight years, it's become easier every year to be super successful with these entities and your relationship with the entities, even if you're, you know, five states away. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It, it, the other thing that's, that's interesting to me is how, so the businesses are dispersed, right? And, and I, I love the, you're bringing up rural areas because I think one of the things that has gotten in the way of, you know, like, why do we have this disparity in the um, economic prospects of rural America and urban America these days? And it, it has, part of it has been access to the same caliber of, you know, technical assistance and resources. And, you know, in the world that you're describing, as long as they have sufficient bandwidth, which is not an obvious assumption in lots of rural America, but if they have that, they could have access to the best of the best, right? It's crazy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it does. It affords them an opportunity to get that high-level expertise at a much different point in their entity and still allowing them to stay rural and be successful. Right. Right now, that's a really good point because otherwise, you have to you have to be a pretty sizable company to be able to afford a CFO, right? It's it's not a small salary for somebody like that, full time. Right, it is. It's not a small salary, and usually, a lot of CFOs want some sort of stake in the entity. So you're also giving up equity for it as well. Right. And so this gives them a really nice option until they're large enough where that full time resource and all of the costs that come with them really make sense that they don't have to compromise on the quality of what they're getting in that resource. Right. But they're not having to give up large values and compensation that they really can't afford, mm -hmm. especially since we help them raise capital. We really want to ensure that that money is put to, especially in the food companies that, that you and I tend to work with, you know, put it into their, their manufacturing and efficiencies and their supply chain and, and the areas um, that will get them farther along faster and being able to reserve cash and not spend it in kind of those overhead allocation areas of the business, but not compromise on their strategy KPIs and uh, 
reporting and ability to create decks and go out and find investors and make sure that, that their assumptions and their growth models are where they need to be. They don't have to compromise. So the nice thing is, is they get kind of a all in one for a value price. <laughs> right, right. No, and then, you know, you hire a CFO, they don't want to be a bookkeeper, right? So you right. can't, like, you can't get the whole thing with one person, even if you do pay for the big amount. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good solution. Um, and, and yeah, so since you brought up uh, the raising capital, um, I think, I think the place where this, you know, not having a resource like a CFO starts to really um, become a problem it is when people, when when a, com a food company d is deciding that they're, they're, you know, they've established the business, they've got a, they've got proof of concept of a business, and now they're going to go raise a significant amount of capital. And when I say significant, I mean, you know, sort of. At once you're out of friends and family, you know, um, right. And, and at that point, having, you know, charts of accounts that don't make any sense and problems with, with time periods of things and not really understanding cost of goods sold and inventory that's a mess and all of those things that are kind of typical for startup food companies then they can't raise money because they can't survive due diligence. So this is this is probably the point where I've reached out to you the most with companies because it's like, yep, we need to get their act together, but also we need to get them staged. It's the, that word, but it's, it's like getting their financials organized and presented in a way that will be compelling and rigorous enough for investors. Absolutely. And it kind of starts with having them fine tune their baseline assumptions mm -hmm. for even, for example, their profit and loss. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your baseline assumptions. Walk me through from revenue all the way down through COGS and, and your back office and what that growth looks like and trying to slowly work them into assumptions that people who invest in food really understand. And, and it's different depending on um, how you're distributing your food. Are you in a brick and mortar, a retail store? Are you a uh, food service? So you're delivering into restaurants, you might be doing both. Or do you have an element of e-com? Because mm -hmm. creating those assumptions all the way down through the P&L, through the whole chart of accounts, those change depending on how you distribute your product. And some people distribute across four different aspects. They could have private label, which means it's their product, but under someone else's label or their branded label or their branded label via e-com or, you know, via food service. Or they could be branded within what's kind of a new element is within food kits or meal mm -hmm. kits. Yeah. Sometimes they're private label within the meal kit, but more and more now it's this guidance towards being branded within a meal kit. And so it's just really interesting to walk them through their baseline assumptions so that when they finally do get in front of an investor, they really know their numbers. They have confidence in their numbers. They totally understand where their manufacturing margin is versus 
their gross margin, especially if they're selling in retail stores, what we call brick and mortar, and have a component called trade spend, which actually reduces your gross revenue above and beyond the invoices that you send out to your customers and the cost of goods sold. And so it's been really interesting to work with companies to get them really confident in their assumptions. And then you move them through those assumptions and into understanding how do you really forecast cash flow so that you understand when you go raise capital, how much do you really need over what period of time? Because we don't want to ask for too little and have to raise around again. And we don't want to ask for too much and you give away more of the company equity than you really want to at this point in time. And so that is always a really interesting activity because that's when you do have to get to an understanding of how are you spending cash before you're able to convert your product back into cash. So you're purchasing, if you're manufacturing your product, you're purchasing packaging for maybe three months and you're having to do bulk purchase orders of, for example, your cashews. So you have cashews on hand for 45 days before you even make the product. So really helping them understand how cash leaves their business prior to that investment that then converts back into cash once they get paid after the terms of their invoice for the product that they sold. And that tends to be a really interesting exercise for a lot of these entities because their estimation of how much cash they thought they needed to raise before we walk through this process of really understanding how do you spend cash before it ever even shows up on your P&L and how does that impact your cash need? Because a lot of high growth companies, depending on what their process is, you could demand for your growth six months out the cash six months earlier and it's a very, very large volume before your revenue that converts into cash kicks in. And so that is always a really insightful area that we spend a lot of time so that they have a lot of confidence in why that's happening, why they need that much cash, even though we're forecasting to the peak. And what does that mean as far as their fundraise and how much money, or excuse me, how much equity they're gonna have to give up in the company in order to accomplish that goal? Or do we need to go back and fine tune a few things to see if we can get into a little bit better level of ask that they're more comfortable with as far as how much equity they're going to have to give up in the business. And so that's been when we come into capital raises, a really interesting eye opener for a lot of the businesses. A lot of them have a pretty good pulse on their profit and loss. Mm -hmm. As far as understanding what happens with their revenue and expenses out, they, they feel pretty comfortable with that. They can pretty fluidly speak to it and talk about it. But it's that understanding how cash is moving in and out of their business and that timing differential that there's a lot of value and education there that makes them a lot more effective when they go out and they speak to investors and say, here's the cash ask that we have and here's why we need it. There's more of a component to it than saying, hey, we need it 
um, for resources, uh, different types of headcount, but we also need it, and we kind of need a much more of a spike than you're seeing on our profit and loss because of our supply chain, of whether it's packaging or whether it's raw materials, our supply chain demands cash outflow before we have the cash coming in. So in order for us to really grow this company at the velocity that we want, it's going to require that level of cash. So that that's where right. a lot of the capital raise, the, 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 the biggest area that, that I have worked with food entities that has been helpful in them more successfully speaking with those investors. To uh, totally agree with that. You know that that understanding um, a cash cycle and how you you know design a business model to make it. Um, you know, a lot of people start out, especially in the natural category. I think our instinct is because they're not thinking about cash. We come up with these products that are gorgeous, right? They have these amazing mm -hmm. ingredients. And it's from some, it, you know, it has, I, my example I tell people is I, we use Madagascar bourbon vanilla in our way in the beginning. And that like comes into the country once a year and it's the most amazing vanilla, but it was so impractical from a cash perspective, right? Cause we'd be buying it one time in the year. Um, and so things like that, we, we design our products because we don't think about the cash side of it. And then you go back and realize that this was really not a good plan. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. And I, I tell people, then you get to value engineer your product, right? We, we ended up doing, um, bourbon vanilla. It's still bourbon vanilla, um, which is a varietal, but it's not from, same varietal, but it's not from Madagascar. It's still really great vanilla. Nobody noticed the difference. <laughs> so, um, right. Yeah. Still a beautiful product. It's still a beautiful product. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's, so there's that element. And then there's the other thing that I think investors and, and entrepreneurs don't get about the cash thing is related to going into distribution, like, we're, okay, I'm going into a new distributor, or I'm going to say yes to Target. And they don't, and it's like, well, I'm going to, you know, make money. This is a profitable account. And they don't go back and do the cash thing to figure out that, oh, my God, I, I need a half a million dollars in cash to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. What, and that's exactly it. What, what is that investment in order to secure that distribution point? Yeah. And there can be a big cash demand. And that's kind of what I keep going back to when I say trade spend. Um, <clears throat> trade spend is that, that element of spend that you have either with the distributor or the retailer of different asks that they're going to have from you, whether it's, discounts or promotions or um, simply saying, hey, we want money for you to get into our computer system or you have to buy your spot on this shelf. What is that distribution procurement going to look like from a cash perspective? And it's interesting because depending on where you live in a store is very much going to dictate that volume. Um, so when CBD first came out, as far as the farm bill, a lot of the products, a lot of the retailers were initially waiving a lot of the normal fees that they would charge like beef jerky or granola bar. 
because they were so excited about this new opportunity. Now, with FDA and some other things, there, there's been some changes there, but it is really interesting depending on what type of product you are and where you live in the store, that is a really variable cost as far as large or small. And then like you talked about, whether it's Target or Sprouts or Whole Foods, different retailers want different concessions and different investments. And what does that look like? And so that goes back to that element of trade spend and how does that really truly impact your cash? And that's something that tends to be an area that we spend a lot of time initially at earlier stage companies, getting them comfortable with and helping them figure out how to forecast it and understand it and make sure that when they open up those opportunities for those distribution moments that they're ready for it and they do understand what the cost is. Because if you go in too early and they're excited about you and then you realize you can't afford it because of the trade spend, it makes it very hard to have that second opportunity to get that thumbs up from the retailer to go into that distribution again. So we really wanna make sure that people are comfortable with it so that they understand it and are ready for it when the opportunity becomes available. Yeah, I remember, um one of the, I think it was like the, I, I so we launched Shares Way at, at Expo East, then we went to Expo West. It's at Expo West. I met the, the buyer for the protein category for Vitamin Shop, and they really wanted to bring us in. And I, it was so many stores, right, for our little yeah. brand. It was just impossible to say yes, you know. And fortunately, I knew enough to be able to you know, to understand the trade spend dynamic, but a lot of people don't, right? And then you're saying yes to something that would be a catastrophic potentially for the company financially. Um, turned out we ended up in vitamin shop, but it was about two years later by the time before we could really afford to be in there. You know, absolutely. And you bring up a really good point, which is, when a point of distribution comes up like a Walmart or a Target, these larger retailers, they their store availability of the number of stores that you can that they can decide that they want you to distribute in, you may not have the capacity or even the ability to supply chain procure stuff in order to fulfill that. And you never want to start the relationship, open up the distribution, and then not be able to fulfill it. Because if you fail in that moment with that retailer, it is so difficult to get that second chance. And so as you start to kind of sketch out the type of distribution that you want to take on, and that's going to make the most sense for your company and the growth of your company is, what is the largest opportunity that they can ask of us? And can we actually handle that? So that if you do go into those larger retailers and have those conversations, you're laying out from the get-go the maximum amount that if they decide they want to move forward with you, that you can handle and you have those discussions with them early on. Because they're actually really appreciative of that because then it helps them understand the scope of of how aware you are of your capacity and your ability to deliver and that you are mindful of that and don't want to fail on it, especially if you're not at the 
size to be able to fulfill, say they are like, let's go into all the stores. Right. You know, Walmart will do that a lot of times if they're super excited about your product where they'll be like, okay, we're ready for you to go into 4,000 stores. Right. And you'll be like, wait a minute, what about the 175 store, right? (laughs) You know, uh, uh, test batch, you know? (laughs) Right, right, right. So, So it, it is important as you as you start to plan your distribution, which is how you forecast your revenue, uh, especially the growth, is to really understand what the growth of capacity of, you know, your product to make your product and, and different food companies manufacture their product in different ways. You know, you have the co-packers where someone else is making it for you. They may or may not be able to find more room on their line for you to expand really quickly or you self-manufacture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, d- do you have the capacity in the building you're in if Target or Costco came to you and said, okay, this is the volume that you're going to distribute out to really knowing what that flow is before you kind of jump into the pool of pitching to those retailers so that you have the early established the boundary conversations um, that you do that early on. So, so it is interesting where people get so excited when they go to the trade shows because these amazing retailers are really loving their product and excited about their product and uh, the innovation and you get so excited about that and then you start conversations and then you start mapping out what does the relationship look like. And like you said, you get in this place where it's like, oh, gosh, how how are we going to deliver on that? How are we going to make that happen? Can we make that happen? So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I, you know, ours is a good example of you know keeping the they do. As you said, they really respect it. If you say, you know what, it's too big for us to do right now. They that and they in our case are like, well, stay in touch, because when you're ready, we want to bring you on. Right. It was it was a really good relationship. So um, I think people are afraid to say no, you know, um, like, oh, I'll never get yeah. the chance again. But that depending on how you handle it, it may not be true. And, and I think the other key thing I wanted to highlight is it doesn't, it's not just that you can't physically make it, it is that you don't have sufficient cash to do it, right? And that's why right. this cash forecasting thing is so, is so important. Yeah, the other uh, thing absolutely. is distributors don't always pay you, right? Like, like UNFI, when you first go in, they, they make you have three right. inventory turns before they pay you. So yep. that's not even, that's above trade spend, right? Like you had to do yeah. all the trade spend and now UNFI isn't paying you for months. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly it. Um, or their terms, uh, a lot of times when you go into some of the retailers, if you have a direct relationship like um, Walmart, for example, or a CDS, what they'll say is your initial terms that will pay you on is, you know, 45 to 60 days, which is a really long time, especially if you're self-manufacturing from the time that you procure the packaging and raw materials in order to make the product to deliver to them and for them to turn around and then, um, pay you on 45 to 60 day rather than when you've been out there longer and can either get, you know, 2% 10 day terms or 30 day terms. 
that cash outflow, you could be out of cash before it comes back in as cash for over 90 days. So if you all of a sudden have to procure enough raw materials and packaging to be able to even go into say 500 Walmart stores with three SKUs, like you said earlier, that could cost you $500,000. And you're not gonna be able to replenish your checking account with that money for over 90 days. Can you really pull that off? Right. And uh, so it, it, it is interesting, all these different components that, that go into those assumptions of what can your growth look like? And then going back to how much do we need to raise if that's what we really want our growth to look like? Right, right. I, I was um, talking to somebody who is a board member at a, a, a fairly big dairy cooperative um, and um, multi-state dairy cooperative and they told me that they the co-op is getting 120 day terms from general mills <laughs> i was like oh my god how wow. can you stay in business right it's just yeah. yeah yeah it's just crazy so um business yeah. from a um from just from a cash perspective let's um you know uh, it are the companies that you're doing work with who do e-commerce, is their cash, um, like their cash cycles shorter or not so much? You know, it depends on the type of e-commerce platform that you're doing. If you're doing e-commerce, you know, when you're on Amazon, uh, that's a little bit different because your product is, you're making a large amount of product and it depends on whether you're fulfilling yourself or you're having, you know, Amazon fulfill your product. And there is a trick there because there's cost to Amazon fulfilling versus yourself because there's more fees associated from Amazon. But a lot of buyers who buy on the Amazon platform get really reluctant if it's fulfilled directly by the company rather than Amazon because they want their, you know, two day turnaround and want it on Amazon Prime right, and right. all of that. So you're having to fill the Amazon warehouse with a lot of product before it even sells. So while it, most of the time you can say, yes, e-commerce, you shorten that cycle, it kind of depends on how you're selling e-com. If you're on your own website, obviously that's very quick conversion to cash. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, it doesn't necessarily help earlier stage smaller companies from the cash cycle because they, if they're, for example, co-packing, there's a minimum order of units that they're going to make for you when you ask them to. So you still have that cash outlay. Right. And there's also, if you're manufacturing yourself, you have a lot of fixed costs like the rent for your facility and the utility. So you even still have that same problem of cash outlay even to produce a few units. So while you see your cash come back to you a little quicker, you can still have that constraint. But the way that e-commerce really enables your cash situation to be better is in the margin because you're able to charge the same price that a retailer charges, but you don't have that distribution middleman price tag on it. So you're actually making that middleman margin on top of what 
on top of what your margin would have been had you given it to Target to sell or Walmart to sell or CVS to sell. And then the nice thing is, is in order on an e-com platform, in order to get more people viewing your product and purchasing your product, enticing them, you're able to put some discounts on that more frequently because you have a larger margin on that product. So while the timeline is shortened, in some instances not substantially so, it means that the volume of dollars you're getting back into your pocket for an e-com sell versus through distribution of brick and mortar, you're getting more of it. Your margin is usually much higher, even though you're probably running direct-to-consumer discounts more than you would in a grocery. Right. So it, it, it's kind of a twofold component on income. Right, right. So in food companies, one of the things that I, I find people don't understand when they're trying to like switch, and by people, I mean entrepreneurs, I mean people who run accelerators, I mean investors or used to tech, they don't understand that a food, a young food company can actually use debt much earlier than a tech company can to fund their growth. I right. wonder, I wonder how you work with people around that. Around funding the growth? Yeah, with and using debt and equity instead of saying, oh, it's all right. debt, right? Or it's all equity. Right, it, exactly. We want to ensure that the type of debt that we're pursuing actually truly does complement the capital raise and complement the goals of the company and doesn't create a larger expense in interest so that they kind of become in this vicious cycle. So making sure that we're paying attention to the type of debt that we're pursuing that helps us accomplish our goals, such as giving us a little bit more runway with our cash. Um, because maybe we carry a larger inventory. Um, a lot of debt that uh, food companies tend to leverage, which is always super smart debt in my mind, is financing a lot of their capital expenditures because that generally can tend to be a very large strain as far as cash on a lot of these food entities that manufacture their products or they're working with a co-packer that is requiring them to buy a specific piece of machinery for their particular manufacturing process. And so that investment is, that CapEx investment can be a very tough position. And so a lot of them use debt financing that collateralizes that equipment, which is really smart financing because it's a big cash outlay on day one from when they purchase it. And if they're able to find great ways to finance it, really allows their cash that they're raising in capital to continue to work on the growth of revenue and um, hiring the resources for marketing in order to be able to support sales and um, the sales team as well as that top line revenue growth. So there's always a really nice combination of debt and capital that you can do at the same time that allows the company to accomplish their goals quicker, keeps that cash 
in the account as long as possible without giving up a large amount of equity in order to accomplish those goals. So we, we really do analyze all the different type of debt opportunities, whether it's selling your AR or leveraging as a borrow base your inventory um, or trying to find a traditional line of credit or financing all of your CapEx spend. There are so many interesting programs out there right now that allow you to find debt opportunities, even if you're not EBITDA positive at that time, that are also not like, you know, 20% interest rate. There's actually right. some really interesting programs that have been out there where it's still kind of expensive debt, but it's down in the 10% realm, which is really affordable depending on how you're leveraging it. Right, right. Well, I, I um, recently interviewed um, somebody named Paul Scharfman from the Specialty Cheese Company on the podcast. And um, he, I, I knew him right after he bought like five little cheese plants in Wisconsin that are the size of a large garage, like they're, they, the old cheese plants around here. And he's grown that into a company that has, I, I think he said like 250 employees. And, and he, he calls the SBA 7A program his cheap equity financing because he said mm -hmm. he's used that program time and time again over 30 years to, um, it, you know, to achieve these big jumps in, in expansion of his business. Because they, you can right. use that for working capital too. So he's um, he's done this, you know, the slow growth sort of way. But he's it's quite a substantial company now, thirty years later, um, and he still owns the whole company. Absolutely, that's for sure. And the the nice thing about the seven A is that you usually get that opportunity to have a line of credit that you wouldn't have the opportunity to get if you were trying to go to a Chase or a Wells Fargo and it has a competitive interest rate. It's a great opportunity. Some people get a little nervous around it because of the personal guarantees associated. Um, so it just kind of depends on the CEO or the owner of the entity, how they feel about that. But it really can be a very powerful tool for companies, especially if they're kind of doing the slow and steady growth rather than, hey, my, I don't have a plan to own this company for the next 30 years. I want cash so that I can put nitrous on this opportunity and have an exit event in five years. So that's kind of uh, always an interesting conversation yes. when we start talking about a capital raise or a debt raise is what is your five and 10 year goal for this company? How do you view where you'll be? Will you still be growing this brand? Do you want to plan to sell it in five years, because that really allows us to step back and sketch out how much cash they're going to need and what are the different sources that make the most sense, whether it's debt, whether it's SBA, whether it's capital financing, that allow us to understand how we're going to acquire the cash to accomplish what is that end goal that they're envisioning at this moment. Yeah. So it, it is really interesting. And I do think the 7A loans are a really great option for a lot of entities. And there's a nervousness around it because of that personal guarantee. But 
in any debt that you're going to acquire, that personal guarantee doesn't necessarily go away. No. So it, I, I've always found it very interesting where there's this nervousness with the 7A loans, but yet they don't feel as nervous if Chase is asking for the same thing. Right. And I don't, I tell people, you know, I ran a hundred year old company. Um, you had to have a personal guarantee. Like it's just, I, I think since the financial meltdown, the last financial meltdown, <laughs> um, it, yes. it, it's really hard for even mature companies to get operating lines if somebody isn't personally guaranteeing them, um, or at least partially like a limited personal guarantee. So, and, and food companies, I tell people, you have to have an operating line of credit to have a food yeah. company. And so that's kind of a holy grail for you, right, financially speaking. Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of go, get used to it. You're going to be personally guaranteed. I personally guaranteed $14 million. We had no sales. And trust me, that was not right. my net worth. <laughs> so... Yeah, it, it's it's very scary to do, but if you can reconcile, you know, your thought process around it, it really is such a safety net to have that working line of credit oh, because God. it allows you breathing room when you're thrown curveballs. To think that you're not going to be thrown curveballs because there's, you know, some sort of blight that takes out one of the main component ingredients for your product. And so now the cost is really high or you're having to source something that is entirely different um, or something happens, for example, recently like Earth Fair closing. How does that impact your distribution? Mm -hmm. um, those are the types of things that a working line of credit allows you to tap in for some of the growth and things that you're doing right now, but it actually allows for that elasticity for when things in your baseline assumptions don't go well for a few months or something that you could never have created in your assumption base occurs. For example, where we are in this day and age with coronavirus right. and how much that's impacted the food companies from a cash perspective, more right. so than they expected because there's this perception of, man, companies can't, you know, brick and mortar stores can't keep stuff on the shelf. So these food companies must truly be crushing it um, from a revenue perspective. Well, come to find out that this is actually very crippling for a lot of them because the distributor, even though a retail store is asking for a product to be stocked, the distributor is the one deciding what products they want to earmark to go on the truck, which may not be yours. Because unless you're considered a key staple, you, you may not be able to get on the truck to get on the shelf. So your stuff could just be sitting there in distribution and we're seeing a lot of that. And that's not something you could ever plan for. But when you have a working line of credit, it allows you that elasticity to weather those things that you could have never have predicted that is outside of any sort of concept of something that you could have said, well, this may happen. Right. So I, I really, any company that can give themselves that safety net and be okay with the personal guarantee it really is amazing how beneficial it is to the company because yeah, they don't have to tighten the belt so much in other yeah. areas where it actually strangles their velocity. Yeah. And it's actually, I tell people, it's actually um, 
as an owner of a company, it's more risky to run a food company with no operating line of credit than it is to have a personal guarantee, right? Like you're, you're just so exposed. And, and even just, just plain old seasonality of people don't eat the same amount at the same time of the year. So your revenue is going to shift from, you know, one part of the year to the other, and you can't be laying people off every year. Right. So there's, there are just so many reasons why, why if you have a food company, you need the working capital line of credit and they won't give it to you in the beginning, but it's kind of the holy grail. <laughs> uh, let's exactly. just stay on this to get there, right? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it is risky because you don't have that elasticity. So it, it puts you on a very thin tightrope and you hope that there's not a gust of wind that's going to come and knock you off. Right. Um, and, and it is risky and it is scary. You could have an amazing, viable product. Uh, and without that operating line of credit, one small misstep or unpredictable thing, you just can't weather it. So, right. yeah. And, yeah. And, and I know that a lot of entities are very nervous to say, I don't want debt on my balance sheet because it's going to make it hard to raise money. And I have to coach a lot of those earlier stage companies into saying it's not going to close the door for raising money. It's a matter of why that debt's there, how you acquired the debt, what the interest rate and what the purpose was. That might actually be really attractive to the equity investor because they see how you have been very strategic about the phases in which you're growing your company and how you're getting the money to do that. It, it's not a black mark. It can actually be a sign of strength and knowledge and stability of the entity depending on how much volume and why that debt is there. So having this fear around debt is really an interesting conversation that we have over and over and over again with earlier stage entities trying to somewhat decondition that perception of debt and that negative view of it and how it's perceived. Yeah, it's isn't it? it I, I think it's a. It depends what part of the country you're in too, because around here people people are afraid of equity. They'd much rather have debt. It's really weird. And then you know, in your part of the world, like Colorado or the West Coast, everybody's like, "Oh, debt. Why would we do that? We'll just go get investor money." And I'm like, "Yeah, man, investor money is really expensive <laughs> compared to. It's it's just an interesting thing, right?" Um, and, and around here, my investors in Terra's Way, a lot of them made money in manufacturing and, and specifically in food manufacturing. And they they were like, you go get the debt first and then we're going to come in. Like, we, we don't, we're not going to do this if you don't have the capital structure that involves debt because we know that's how we get leverage to make money in this business. So now we were manufacturing, right? But yeah. Right. So let's, it, 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 and it is, it is interesting how they sandwich each other, like the equity people and the debt people, because uh -huh. a lot of the debt companies now, a lot of the really strategic ones that are giving you a borrowing base against your AR and your inventory, mm -hmm. they usually make a component of, hey, we'll turn, we'll go ahead and close this and we'll turn on the lever once you guys bring in like 
$200,000 of equity to show that someone else has your back, Uh, which is really interesting because there's companies like Able Loans, which are high interest rate. And uh, what they do is they always have a component in the debt package that they're putting together for you. You have to have a certain volume of that of friends and family purchasing an equity to your entity, which will then kind of generate that maximum debt value that they're going to allow you to borrow against. So it's yeah. really interesting yeah. how it, it's this like teeter-totter that the debt and the equity people play with each other to say, hey, we both want to be in the game with you because we see that the strength in having us both makes us all much more safe and stronger. So it is interesting. Right, right. Which, Which is makes capitalizing growing food companies in a way, way more complicated than a tech company, right? Because a tech company right. is like, oh yeah, there's no collateral. We're using equity. We'll just go. We know what stage. It's a Series A now. It's a B. It's a C. We, you know, like that whole thing is mapped out. And in food, because of this, you know, these different sources and different kinds of business models and where you can use debt and not, it makes it in a way more complicated. Yeah. Well, and your spend is a lot more variable than a tech company is. You know, you have commodity pricing for a lot of your ingredients. You have a lot of um, different costs that whether you're on e-com or food service or, you know, in brick and mortar, meaning, you know, retail stores. And so I think that that's where, um, the understanding of volume in order to get to being profitable is a different proposition in food than it is in tech. Yeah, yeah. So I, we would be remiss. Which is why they need more cash. <laughs> right, they need more cash, exactly. So, so we would be remiss given what's going on in the world if we didn't talk a bit about COVID-19. It's been really nice, honestly, to not be talking about it for a little bit. Um, I, I don't know if you feel that way, but I do. <laughs> um, but we should yeah. talk about that. So, so what are what's going on with the food companies you're working with? Um, well, kind of where we've been for the last two weeks was trying to have an understanding of what our production runs were going to need and how that impacts our production staff as well as our revenue. Mm -hmm. And then also really trying to understand for the early stage food companies that we're working with, um, trying to understand what future distribution is really gonna look like, that opportunity that we would thought we would have in Q2 and Q3 and what it's really gonna be and how is that gonna push into Q4. It's interesting depending on how the food company distributor distributes their product, it's a very different conversation. My food companies that are for the most part solely e-com business, Mm -hmm. they're doing really, really well. They have somewhat pivoted in the way that they're advertising and targeting and have been very, very successful with their sales, more so than they were pre-COVID, which is really, really interesting. And then you have some of the more traditional distribution companies, um, kind of going back to what I spoke about earlier, where 
retailers are really demanding their product. They were getting a lot of traction and this was going to be a huge growth year for them. And retailers do want their product and they're asking for it right now. But because they're a specialty natural food product, they're having a hard time getting onto the UNFI trucks into brick and mortar, even though the brick and mortar is requesting it. And so they, there's a lot of fear around that of, oh my goodness, what happens if that product sits in the distributor's warehouse for the next three months because they won't allow it on the truck? And now we get hit with a chargeback from the distributor of $20,000 for product that is considered short life or too soon to go bad. How are we going to weather that storm? Because our POs have dried up a little bit because they've got plenty of product in the warehouse The stores want it, but it's broken in the middle. So we've been doing a lot of damage control on how to pivot and say, okay, we realize that it's a struggle in the brick and mortar, but how do we take this opportunity, this pause that we have on that side of the business and really focus on the proposition of what do we look like from an e-com standpoint Mm -hmm. and what pulleys and levers can we manage quickly to see if we can be successful in that format. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's been a lot of the conversation. So it's interesting, depending on how they're distributed, I can have one phone call where the food company is incredibly successful and it shows that an e-com proposition is actually the right way to go for their particular company. And how do we go ahead and ensure that we keep those loyal customers so that we don't see a big fall off when everyone's let out of their houses again? So even though we're doing really well from a revenue perspective, how do we take the tidal wave and stay on the front of it and make sure that we stay relevant and that these adopters that have come to us under this time, we keep their business over and over again and continue to grow off it at that point. Right. That's so the million dollar question been, at the moment, right? It that is. Everybody's like, wow, is, is this just a temporary thing? Or is there a way that, that consumer, I don't know. I think consumers, once they discover how convenient it is to order food online, this is just kind of forced people over a psychological barrier. I think it has. There's been this adoption to people picking your produce and all of these different areas that you you just, it it comes from the early day of, you know, the first time we were offered this service, which was, you know, home grocer, um, where it's like, gosh, like, I like my bananas like a little green. Like, how do I convey that to the person that bought the really yellow ones with the, you know, brown on them? So, but it's been interesting because people that have been forced to adopt it, it's been really interesting to be like, wow, you know, Instacart has done an amazing job picking my produce. And when they're in the store saying they don't have that, do you want to substitute having that communication and truly what is that personal shopper or how do I set my, you know, Amazon fresh cart um, up so that it, it just happens automatically. So I do think that there is this mental hurdle and I don't think we're going to see an equal amount of fall off when this is all said and done. I do think that we'll see a small bounce back, but I have a feeling that buying a lot of your products online is going to become more 
more of kind of the status quo at that point. And that's why companies that have a really heavy traction in e-com are going to be set up to do really well going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And ironically, I have a couple of them that their business is up like 500%. Like, and so yeah. they too need cash, right? Because they, because they're growing so fast, right? Um, so you grow really fast, you need cash, you're bought, you, you have no sales, you also need cash. That's like the COVID story at the moment. Right? Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because different companies are approaching it from a very different perspective of, you know, the cash situation and how, how to, how to manage it. Yeah. We have a lot of products where normally, um, you would, you could go into like a, a, a retailer or into like, for example, beverage companies, you could go into their tap room or what have you. And uh, maybe their tap rooms closed right now. And so the other interesting thing is this, like, how do you buy a gift card? You know, how do you buy a gift card for someone for either groceries or a product to get cash into a lot of these companies' hands and a lot of these entities who have thought about the gift card concept to make sure they still have some cash coming in, knowing that they'll fill the expense of it later on. You know, how, how, do, how do we get over that hurdle and really leverage the e-commerce platform in either a gift card or a subscription methodology or something like that, a membership mm -hmm. will send you, you know, these products on a monthly basis at a 20% discount if you become a subscriber of ours. So it's been really interesting to see how creative so many of these food and beverage companies have gotten in order to continue to leverage the cash and the revenue growth with this kind of forced new climate that I don't think will fully go away. Right. Right. No, I, I um, read an article that an interview with David Chang in New York City, who's, um, you know, celebrity chef saying, I don't know that independent restaurants are going to survive this in the same and come back in the same way. Right. Like we were already headed toward right. this, toward the, um, you know, ghost kitchen kind of model for restaurants and you know, I look in, in our town, Madison, we have so many restaurants and it, and it was getting to the point even before COVID that some of the very prominent chefs who had multiple restaurants were closing some of them or not op or uh, putting projects or new things on hold because the economics weren't working, right? And now we have this, right? So it's going to be interesting to see what happens to restaurants coming out of this. It, yeah, it really is. And we've seen some articles even here where uh, in Colorado, in the Denver, um, mm -hmm. Colorado area, they're predicting about right now, they're saying about 15% of restaurants uh, in this area will most likely not reopen. Right. And it is because, you know, the the margin in restaurants is pretty lean for the most part, right. but the volume that they get kind of allows for that. And I think people got so far away from cooking in their kitchens because there were so many restaurants and there were so many options um, that, that our culture kind of changed a little bit more away from 
you know, cooking because we had options from, you know, cheap fast food all the way up to, you know, fine dining. There was anything there in the middle that you wanted. Um, and ease and convenience has become a very big part of our culture. And so, yeah, people, you know, weren't cooking in their kitchens, even though we're really good at designing and <laughs> making yeah, incredible right, kitchens. Right. They're not being Putting leveraged. a lot of money. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. And so it's interesting because now we see people really, truly forced coming back to the table and cooking and discovering like how fun that is at which will really play beneficially, you know, to the different food companies. Um, you know, I'm having to learn again how to cook meat on a grill and be good <laughs> at it. And there's dishes when I was in my early twenties that I used to prepare, um, that I pulled out of my hat like the other day and I just royally messed it up. It was hilarious. I hadn't made it for like <laughs> 10 years because I'm like the queen of easy eat out. Right. And so it is going to be really interesting to see how this dynamic changes and how that ultimately uh, truly does impact the food companies that are more focused on meals at home rather than, you know, food service. But where I also think it's going to be interesting is this middle ground where collaborating with, um, these, you know, milk meal kit companies and things like that. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how food companies can collaborate with those entities to distribute their product as well, because that's the middle ground, which is they prep it totally for you and then you do cook it at home, but it's easy. The recipe is there. So you're not having to build it all from scratch versus going out to the restaurant. So it's interesting that I think that those meal kit companies are also gaining traction and how do our food companies collaborate with them? Right, right. And and chefs who are doing, you know, the, the pre, you know, pre-cooked and frozen meals that are, are coming in, you know, you can buy your, yeah. uh, the white tablecloth five course meal from a famous chef and it comes your house all frozen <laughs> and ready for you to warm yep. up, right? Stuff like that. It's, it's really, it's really going to be interesting to see where this lands. I think everything that we knew about eating out and cooking and food and distribution and all of that, it's, you know, it, it took a pandemic, but I think it's going to be a really interesting change permanently in, in the food industry. So it is going to be really interesting to have this conversation even 12 months from now, you know, yeah, I, to, I to understand what it was before and where it, it's living now. Yeah. And maybe we should do that. We'll just, I'll just like park yeah. that in the back of my head and we, we can come back and do another one of these in 12 months and say, see what happened. Cause it is, you know, the food industry is an old mature industry that it's really hard to get the ocean liner to shift. And we, I think <laughs> we got, we got the, the pandemic is pushing it. Right. So. Yeah. It's pushing heavily into the behemoth to be like, I'm going to push you off course it, yeah. it, there, th because you have to give. There's some elasticity there that has only ever been rigidity. So, yeah, I, I think that that would be fun to come back and talk about it. Totally. So thank you so much for spending this time with us today. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I think um, it's so fun 
I, I guess I'm a financial nerd, so I like talking about this stuff, but it's really fun to talk to you about the work that you do and, um, and what it does for companies. Well, I really appreciate you having me and it's really been fun to talk with you about it because I think since we can both be kind of financial nerds, it, it just makes for uh, what can sometimes be a little bit dry conversation, just a really fun opportunity to talk about food and, you know, startup companies and all of the exciting opportunity that they have. So I appreciate you having me on and letting me chat with you about it for sure. Terrific. Well, be well, and we'll talk again soon. That sounds great. You guys have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.